The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, so last week we, we got into the, uh, the seven eyes. And we're going to just spend a second reviewing uh, the seven eyes. And this, um, so the seven eyes basically end up being um, how we start to practice uh, biblical counseling. And so the first is involvement. And what, uh, what did I mean by involvement? Okay, living life together. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a good summary. Anybody else? Yeah, avoid professionalism. When you sit down with somebody to help them from the Bible, you don't want to convey some idea like you're the professional and they're the, they're the client, right? Okay. Anything else under I? Um, not quite under, under involvement. That's what you're saying, huh? Okay. Um, what, what's one of the, what's <laughs> under involvement? What's like the big thing? Yeah, Patrick. What's that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There we go. Yeah, very good, Donna. Spectacular. Um, yeah, I mean, that's uh, under involvement. We, we need to know and to love the person that we're counseling, right? Uh, and so then we went to uh, investigation. And under investigation, what did we, what did we think about? Okay, ask good questions, right? Well, what, what constitutes a good question? Okay, so at some point, those questions are going to be open-ended so that the person's talking and you're listening and you're trying to draw things out, right? So good questions. What else? Okay, okay. So you, so you're asking questions to actually get information so that you're able to make some sort of conclusion, right? There are a few other things that are really important. Listen, yes, listen. So investigation, you're 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 actually listening. You're listening well, but. You could say it a different way. If let's say you just have one person, the uh, the 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 principle would be: don't jump to conclusions, right? You've got oftentimes two sides. Now, sometimes people come because they have personal issues that they want to deal with. But if you have a conflict with family members or a spouse or something like that, it's important that you not jump to conclusions, right? Um, Proverbs eighteen seventeen is still just a vital passage. 
The first one to present his case seems right until another comes along and examines it, right? Um, then we, we talked about uh, the preach uh, principles for investigation. What are some, let's see, we didn't put those up. So what, what would P be? Physical, right? What kind of questions you might you ask under physical? How much sleep are you getting? Sure, does that have an impact? Has a huge impact, right? If they go, I wake up 15 times a night um, and um, I actually never get into a deep sleep, can that affect a person's, um, can it affect their emotions? Can it, I mean, yeah, I mean, lack of sleep. So that's one physical question. What's that? Diet, yep. Are you only eating meat? No. <laughs> um, medications. What's that? Yeah, right. Are, do you get exercise? What, do we believe that the body and the soul are interrelated? Yeah. Does the, can the soul affect the body and the body affect the soul? The answer is yes. We might want to actually also ask if we have, if we have any reason to, are you, are you self-medicating using alcohol or narcotics? Okay. Um, if a person's using alcohol to um, soothe their sorrows, do you need to know that? Yeah. Uh, then our resources, what do we mean by resources? Yeah, what, who are the people in your life that can help you, right? Um, if the only people in the person's life are those that contribute to the problem, is that a problem? It's a big problem. Um, if they have friends, family, local church, that's important to know. E, emotional. Yeah, we're asking questions that relate to fear, worry, anxiety, bitterness, depression, anger. And then we get to A, action. This is common sense, by the way, if you have kids, Right? If you, say, if you say to a kid, if you say to your seven-year-old, why did you do that? What are they going to say? I don't know. Boy, you guys must have raised kids. Uh, it's just it's the common answer, right? I don't know. Well, you're asking a question of a seven-year-old dealing with the motives of their heart, right? Are they going to say, well, you, actually, why I did that is because um, I've got this deep idol called self, and that was my toy, and I'm the ruler of my own kingdom, and so it seemed natural for me to smite my enemy, okay? They're not going to say that, so what do you ask them? What did you do, right? So action is, and why is that important? If you're sitting there and you're, you're talking to somebody, why is it important for them to actually express what they've done. Okay, they, they may not have a clear 
view of what they've done or what they're doing, right? Yeah. Okay. It could totally be that there's a lot of blame shifting going on. And so when you're asking the question about action, you're getting down to what did you actually do? I don't, I don't want to know what you think your spouse did to make you do this. I want to know what you did. Okay? If I just said, you know, well, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be an angry person if, if I didn't have that kid. Right? First of all, is that true? No. Okay. That, that kid may simply be the context. <laughs> Right? Could there be hard things about that kid? The answer is yes. But the fact is, is that what's inside is just coming out. Can the kid be an expert on pushing the buttons? Of course. But guess what? If you have buttons that get pushed and something comes out, it was already there. So action is important. Then C is conceptual, and that this is more the why did you do it, right? And at that point, we were talking to somebody, we're asking them, so why, why did you get angry? What was it about uh, this outburst? Um, what precipitated it? Why did it happen? And then the H is historical. And we noted last week, don't neglect the possibility of physiological factors, and so that's why uh, some of those questions are really important. And so we we ended on the note that it in in some circumstances it may be necessary for a person to become stabilized before they can actually start thinking clearly about some of the issues, right? And we. We talked just a, a little bit about the idea of medication, and, and let me just reiterate for, for emphasis, we, we live in a society that's heavily over-medicated, okay. all right, and <clears throat> the statistics are pretty alarming of people that are on antidepressants and so forth. It is, it is, it is uh, an over-medicated society. On the other hand, what we don't want to do is we don't want to completely dismiss the fact that medication may serve a temporary purpose of stabilizing a person so that they can begin to think more clearly, all right? And so um, that brings us to sort of the end of investigation Uh, you need to try to determine if the person you're talking to is a believer. Now, what can't you know? You're not God. You're, you're, You're not God. And so, if you're talking to somebody, they profess to be a Christian... And they are, and there's, you know, there's some fruit, maybe not as much as you think there should be. Um, should you, in the counseling process, treat them as a believer? 
this is not a hard question. No, you should. You should. Why should you? What's that? Okay, so they, they've made a confession. Um, when Paul deals with the Corinthians, did the Corinthians demonstrate so much good fruit that Paul was so utterly compelled that they must be some of the best Christians he's ever met? No. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, he deals with some, some really ugly things that were going on in that assembly. But yet you read 1 Corinthians and Paul deals with them on the assumption that they are in Christ. Okay. Is there a time where, let's say, let's say you have um, somebody who is wanting to talk to you and you find out um, they're living with their girlfriend and they are, and, and they're in church and they, they profess to be a Christian and yet you find out they're a fornicator, you find out they have no desire to actually do anything other than continue to fornicate. Do you still treat them like a Christian? <laughs> That's not true. Unbelievers are called to repent. Yeah. Tony? What? <laughs> Only partially correct. <laughs> you did way better than Strachan. All right, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So if you have somebody that's actually living with somebody they're not married to, what does the Bible say? Fornicators don't inherit the kingdom of God, right? Such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been justified. So I think that there's, there's a process if you're dealing with somebody so the context of being in a local church is absolutely vital, right? The first thing that you, that you do is you don't just jump to, um, you're phony. You say, you know, you've got this, this sin. It's actually a sin that the Bible says that if you practice this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it is, it is absolutely incumbent on you that you examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Okay? 
2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Isn't it interesting that in 1 Corinthians, the apostle deals with them on the basis of their profession of faith and actually deals with them as those who are in Christ. And yet at the end of 2 Corinthians, he actually says to those who were continuing in their rebellion, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, lest you fail the test. Now, you say that to somebody, you need to examine yourself. And they say to you, well, I believe that I'm just a Christian fornicator. It's an oxymoron. So can you begin to conclude, as best as I can tell, I don't think this person is walking in faith, and I don't believe that he's in Christ. And the answer is, yeah. Does that change the direction of your counsel? And the answer is yes. Does it change the level of involvement in terms of the local church? And the answer is yes. All right? But trying to determine that up front is an important thing. Michaela. Right. Okay. So might it be a good thing, maybe the, the first time you sit down with somebody, let's say you don't know them that well, all right? Um, and you say, hey, before we get started, could you explain the gospel to me? Might that be a good thing to do, especially if you don't know the person or know them that well? The answer is yeah, okay? But you've got to determine that, and, um, and what I'm saying is, that if they profess faith, give them a judgment of charity, all right? Um, You also need to try to determine their spiritual condition. So turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Yes. Okay, that's a great question. All right, did everybody hear the question? All right, okay, no. Okay, turn up your hearing aids. Um, So I'll try to summarize it, okay? So let's say you have somebody who continues to insist they're a Christian. They don't acknowledge their sin. They're not interested in repentance. And you feel like, you know what, the, 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 the credibility of their profession is not actually... Uh, credible at all, and yet they still want to meet because they still have things in their life that they need to be sorted out. And, um, and I'm going to say, one, that th- there's a sense in which this is going to depend upon the, the person, but I would, I would say that as a, as a general rule, if you have a person 
who says, I'm a Christian, they're not living as a Christian, they're not interested in dealing with the issues that make them not be living as a Christian, but want to deal with other issues, it's a waste of time, and you tell them you can't meet. What good does it do to have a person who claims to be in Christ and yet is living in in sin that the Bible says will exclude them from the kingdom of God, and they're not willing to deal with that sin first, right? So what? You help them, you know, get uh, control over their life so that they have a budget, or right? The most important thing's not been dealt with. And so I don't want to do anything to help contribute to somebody that is a that is a false professor of, um, of faith, okay? So, and, and I think that continuing under the guise of Christian counseling ends up then being a charade because you're dealing with somebody that is in all likelihood not a believer, okay? All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 12, or uh, verse 14, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So, how many categories of people do you have there? You have three distinct categories. The unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. If you treat an unruly person like they're faint-hearted, are you doing them any favors? No. If you treat a faint-hearted person like they're unruly, will you do any damage? Yes. Right? So actually trying to get a, a read on where the person is, is this actually just a faint-hearted person? Right? Um, the, um, the, the, the imagery of, of faint-hearted is a person who is fearful, a person who is uh, worrisome, a person who, um, it, the, the word is, is literally like small-souled, okay? okay? What about a weak person? What might a weak person be? Well, it could be a physically infirmed person, the word, the word could be used that way, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. I think he's talking about somebody that is, that is, they're not a strong person. They're a weak person. They're a person that has deep struggles. They're a person that doesn't, they don't fight the battle all that well. They feel as if, um, as if sin is too strong. It could be that they're a despairing person, a hopeless person, right? All of those things would constitute weakness. Unruly is different. Unruly is what? Okay. What's that? Okay, an undisciplined person, all right? So, so an unruly person, so the, the word that Paul uses would be a, a person that lacks discipline, okay? 
but the unruliness is not just um, they don't faithfully read 10 chapters of their Bible every day in a disciplined way. It is that they, their, their life is, is not governed by principle or discipline, and in fact, they live a somewhat rebellious or even defiant life. Is it important to be able to identify those differences? Okay. So I want to say that I think that over the years, there really has been uh, quite a bit of damage that's been done under um, the... (laughs) There's been quite a bit of damage that's been done when you've had weak people or faint-hearted people treated as if they are unruly people, right? You, you, you don't want to, to, to break the bruised reed. You don't want to extinguish the dimly burning flax. And so you've got to have an idea of where this person is coming from, right? If, if your counseling approach is everything is a nail and I'm a hammer you're going to actually damage people in the process. And then notice that last part, be patient with all. I don't know about you, but that's the easy part, right? (laughs) So you're trying to determine as a person a believer, you're trying to determine their spiritual condition, and you're also trying to pick up on nonverbal things as as they talk. are there nonverbal communication cues that you should be paying attention to? So, you got the husband and the wife, and they're in there, and the husband's sitting there, and he's looking at the ceiling, and he pulls out his pocket knife, and he starts cleaning his fingernails. What might you deduce? It's not that that's never happened. I just made that up. Um, what might you deduce from from that nonverbal communication? <laughs> okay, yeah. So, like baseline, he's not interested, right? So you got to pick up on things like that. So, depending on, let's just say how ornery you are, you might want to say, "I'm sorry. Am I boring you?" <laughs> Okay, or you might wait until everything's done and then pull the guy aside and say, you know, your body language is just kind of communicating that you really weren't very interested in what we were talking about. Is it a problem if he's not interested? Absolutely. All right. Also watch for rolling eyes. That's a real... That's not a Borgman trait, but... (laughs) Is it, Seth? Never. Rolling eyes say a lot. A rolling eye is worth a thousand words. (laughs) All right, that brings us to uh, eye interpretation. And 
So here's, here's where we start to try to draw some conclusions, right? We're drawing conclusions based on the questions that we've asked. We've, we're drawing conclusions based on the conversations that have happened. And so one of the things about interpretation is that uh, oftentimes the person coming for help doesn't actually know or, or has not even correctly identified the issues of their own heart, Okay. Right? I would say that that's fairly common. Right? Uh, people come in, and, and this gets back to uh, what Donna says earlier, distinguishing between, uh, in a sense, the causes and the symptoms. Sometimes they, they're looking at the symptoms in their life, and they've never even actually given two seconds thought about what might be causing them. Right? So as interpreting, you have to understand that simply what they say is the presenting problem may not actually be the real problem after all. And so when we interpret, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to, the very best that we can, remember, dependent on Scripture and dependent on God's Spirit... Okay? We're not professionals. We're not breaking out the DSM-4 and looking up where, you know, what the diagnosis is. So as a result, guess what you do? You give biblical labels to things, not psychologized labels. Okay. What's, the, what's the problem of just sticking with psychologized labels? Okay, they may carry weight that's not scriptural. Let's, let's say we have a psychologized label that is fairly accurate in its description. Why is it not helpful to use the psychologized label? Okay, okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to endorse things, okay, uh, Jessica. Yeah, yeah. See, that's, that's the big problem, is that if I strict, stick with psychologized labels, then, and I don't use biblical labels, then psychologized labels often end up creating a category of, of, of victimization, right? Or th- this particular thing is not my fault, so I know that I am an absolutely rebellious, defiant person, but that's because I have um, oppositional defiance disorder. <laughs> so what have I done? I've, just, I've, I've given it a category that now takes it one step away from, from being my sin. Right, so so get used to using biblical labels. In, in other words, call whatever it is what the Bible calls it. Okay, so let me just let me say uh, let me give you an example, and this is this is probably one of the more difficult examples, and maybe one of the more controversial examples. So we talk about addiction. All right? And addiction actually has woven its way into our vocabulary. Okay? 
And what I want to say is, if you've used the word addiction, I've used it, you've used it, not saying that you've committed a big sin, but what I am saying is that there are better biblical descriptors than addiction. The Bible would speak in terms of, let's say, bondage. Or the Bible would speak in terms of, before I tell you that, let me ask you this. If, If you have somebody and they look at the use of, of something to bring them comfort and take the place of God. What do we call that? We call it idolatry. Okay? Okay? A lot of times, drug or alcohol abuse is simply a version of chemical idolatry. Looking to the substance to do for you what only God can do. All right? So this is what I mean. We, we have to, if, if all we do is, 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 in a sense, just traffic in psychologized labels, then, then we're never going to actually get past um, the, uh, in a sense, the, the excuse level. Okay, so use biblical categories. Um, Distinguish between symptoms and causes. Uh, Turn over to uh, Jeremiah. This is one of the best counseling passages in the Bible. There's about five that are my favorites. This is certainly one of them. Jeremiah chapter 17 Starting at verse 5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he'll be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Awesome text, okay? Real simple your roots <laughs> are going to bear fruit. Okay? Nathan, put that, put that famous diagram up. If you've been around biblical counseling for any amount of time, you will recognize this or something like it. All right? And so you've got the tree over on the left and the tree over on the right. Okay? And, of course, the tree on the left, what is... What is noticeable about that tree? It's green. It's got fruit. It's thriving, right? And so what do you notice about the tree on the right? It looks like it's native to Nevada. Okay? So it is 
<laughs> so what, what, is, what is the problem? So if you've ever heard Paul Tripp, he talks about, so what we do a lot of times is we take apples and we go over to the tree on the right and we start trying to staple apples to the dead branches. Okay. Is that is that smart? Is that effective? Is that, is that how you get an apple tree? And the answer is no. You have to look at the root system. So the tree on the right, bad root. What, what is the root? What you believe, right? Your fundamental convictions about what you believe and what you desire, right? And so that the root leads to bad fruit or just death, okay? Then over there, you have, on the left, you have the good root and what you should want and what you believe. And of course, that ends up, you know, notice the stream of water coming from the, the word and the redeemer and you bear fruit. And so then you have up at the top, by the way, this is all Jeremiah 17. Up at the top, you've got the heat. That is what? That's your situation, And the Jeremiah passage says, so when the heat comes, when the drought comes, if you've got the right root system, that is the stuff in the heart is is in a good place, you're going to continue to thrive and bear fruit even though you've got bad circumstances. The bad circumstances or the heat with the tree on the right are going to do what? Is going to continue to wither that tree. In other words, it has no ability to actually withstand the heat or the drought. So when we say you have to distinguish between causes and symptoms, if somebody, we'll just use a a simple illustration, if somebody comes to you and says, I have a drinking problem, I get drunk every other day, is their problem that they continue to drink after their blood alcohol content reaches uh, the illegal limit? (laughs) It's a symptom, okay? And so when you're thinking about causes, you're not, so is it important for you to say, uh, so, so how much do you actually drink, right? Totally important, right? Just remember, there's that constant tendency, um, three beers usually means six. People are always minimizing, right? So, Seth, is it not true that you pull somebody over, you say, have you had anything to drink? And they say, well, officer, I had, I had two beers. And you're thinking two actually translates to ten, right? And so, this, by the way, this is the nature of being a sinner, right? So what did you do? Well, I, you know, I had a little too much to drink. By the way, when you're counseling with people, don't let them minimize their sin. I had a little too much to drink. Hold on a second. Is that actually true? You just had a little too much? Right? You, you, you gotta be, you gotta start being honest, right? You want the person to be honest, okay? Yes, Ira is well on her way to the biblical counseling expertise, right? So, but you have to then start then asking the questions that get to the causes. Why do you drink? 
Now, every once in a while, Charlie can testify to this, not out of personal experience, but just um, having co-witnessed this with me from time to time. Are there, on some maybe less frequent occasions where you find somebody and they go, I just like to drink. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? But that's, not, that's typically not the norm, right? And so, by the way, if you find that person, that person's a little easier to deal with, I think, than the person who's trying to do all kinds of things, whether it is deal with guilt or deal with sadness and so forth. All right. And then B, uh, finally, under interpretation, be fluid in your conclusions. What do I mean by that? I mean, be open to actually thinking, okay, maybe I didn't get this, this right last time. Maybe there's, you know, you're, you're not an infallible interpreter. So be fluid in those, in those conclusions, realizing that you may, have, uh, may not have taken in. Is, is it possible that in the next session when you sit down with somebody, information comes up that ends up making more sense out of something that you now understand better than you did last time? The answer is, of course. So just be open to that. Right? Don't, don't think that your opinions or interpretations constitute the law of the Medes and the Persians. All right, that brings us to the next I, which is instruction. And let's see. So, when it comes to instruction, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means properly using biblical texts. How important is it for me to have an open Bible? (laughs) I'm trying to help somebody. I, I want them to actually see the text that I'm talking about, right? And what are you doing with those texts? Are you just reading them? No, you're reading them. You're explaining them. But guess what else you're doing? You're actually trying to skillfully show them how that text applies to their life, right? By the way, this, this, this is not brain surgery, it's actually just knowing the, the texts that need to be looked at and then in dependence on God's spirit trying to show them how those texts apply. Okay? And so you want to properly use biblical text. You don't want to just take text out of context in, in order to try to make a point. And then you try to instruct interactively. Okay? Now, what that to instruct interactively... Um, let's say the degrees of interaction are going to depend on any given situation, okay? So ideally, you want some kind of back and forth as you're trying to instruct, right? So how do you think this, you're asking them questions, you're trying to engage, you're trying to be interactive. There are times where you have the data and you simply now, you, you actually now have to really make a point. Okay? And so the level of interaction will vary. Okay? But you want to instruct interactively. And then also you want to teach redemptively. 
In other words, everything that you're doing, you're, you're, not just, you're not just looking at texts for the sake of behavior modification. You're looking at texts to point them to the grace of God and what God requires of them. Okay? So you're teaching, you're instructing redemptively. And um, when it comes to sin, be kind, be gentle but firm. Kind, gentle, firm. Will the application of kind, gentle, firm also be fluid? Yeah. Um, Are there times where it's, where it is, absolutely critical that there be a kindness and a gentleness in the instruction or the admonition. Yes. Will there be times where more firmness is needed than gentleness? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Lily. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a correlation, right? So if, if, I have, if I have somebody and they, they see their sin clearly, they're broken over their sin, they want help, okay? Then coming down with a really firm hand is not exactly what that person needs at that moment, right? That, they already know. When is firmness required? And it's, it's when the person doesn't see their sin and, and won't see their sin, right? So you got to be more firm than, than gentle. But these are, in a sense, non-negotiable qualities that need to exist. And so as we're trying to instruct, sin always has to be dealt with. And, and if it's, you're dealing with a Christian, sin always has to be repented of. And then new patterns have to be established. And we're going to talk about repentance in just a second if we have time. But let me just, let me say something about repentance. And, and Charlie, if you want to weigh in on this, uh, please do. There's, there's always, there's always um, a, a sense of, of tension when we're talking to somebody about repentance. And and here's the tension. If I'm a child of God and I have God's spirit and I know that I need to repent, can I repent? Yes. Um, do Do I necessarily need a detailed description of what my repentance is supposed to look like. This is the hard part. Okay? Because repentance isn't rocket science. So if I have somebody and they are engaged in in, in some kind of life-dominating sin 
or they are engaged in some kind of behavior that's destructive to themselves or destructive to other people, and they start to see that sin, and, and, and then you tell them, you, you, need, you need to repent of that. Is there something natural to the child of God which is going to actually be clear in my heart as to what that repentance is supposed to look like? Yes. So I'll tell you what, one of the things that is, Charlie, would you say that's true? Okay, Charlie, uh, for the recording, Charlie nodded his head vigorously. Okay. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that that is um, that, that can be frustrating is the person that just is continually saying, "Well, I don't know how to repent. I don't know what it looks like." Okay. Okay. Well, at least the 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 the. The common denominator in all repentance is stop it. (laughs) Right? Okay. Now, the other side. Could that person be in the fog of sin and need help in knowing what areas of life need to be impacted by repentance? And the answer is yes. So on the one hand, there's something intuitive about repentance. On the other hand, we need to be patient because we may need to actually walk a person through certain aspects that are not even registering with them yet. All right? Now... We want to give um, manageable homework. We'll talk about homework a little later. Okay, so this is an instruction. You want to give manageable homework. And you want to avoid legalism. What What do I mean by legalism? I mean making any instruction that goes beyond Scripture a command. Do you think it's easy to actually implement basically legalism in the course of biblical counseling? Okay, yeah. Um, really, what, the, the, the way to avoid legalism is, is just fundamentally making a distinction between wisdom and command. Okay, right? Are there things, so let's say a person's a chronic liar. They lie about everything. Um, and you've shown them Revelation 21.8 that all liars go to the lake of fire. And you show them Ephesians 4, you're to put off lying. All right, and they, they are, you know, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to, to stop lying, okay? Can you say, you must stop lying? <laughs> Can you say that? Absolutely, right? Why? Well, because the Bible says that. So I have no problem saying, listen, you know, or um, what about um, what about abusing somebody? Can you say, you have to stop 
Yes. But what about the implementation? And I say, okay, so the way to stop lying is um, what you have to do next is I want you to put a tack in the heel of your shoe. And when you're about to lie, what, what you now must do is you must lean back until you feel the pain, and then that pain will actually send a message to your brain that's going to then say, you shouldn't lie. Okay? So might it be wise to put a tack in your shoe? The answer is no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so bad example, because I could have come up with something that was wiser, but... I don't want to take, in other words, I don't want to take um, applications and raise them to the same level of command. All right? I want to make a distinction. So this is, this is the wise, I think this would be wise for you to do, right? And of course, if the person wants counsel, they're going to want wisdom. But don't, don't elevate the wisdom to the level of command. All right? So it's important to instruct with that in mind. Michaela? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and pray for everybody that's trying to help somebody, right? I mean... You know, we just happen to do it, like, all the time. And um, so, basically, the use of um, battery cables and car batteries is not a wise approach. Although, maybe effective. (laughs) All right, just kidding. Um, (laughs) It's not that Charlie's ever been tempted to do that before, but... All right, so that's instruction. Um, we'll talk about homework a little bit more next week, but let me, just, let me just close with this. So in terms of instruction, what, what is the function of homework, right? So you, you don't want to just have your session and then act like that's it. There's got to be something that they follow up with, Right? And so, why might homework be a really good idea? What's that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll put it this way. The, um, <laughs> the fruit of the counseling happens when they leave. Right? Does that make sense? What happens when you're sitting down with somebody, you may think, that went great. Okay. So, anytime, you know, Daniel and I or Charlie or... We might go, so how did you think that went? And the, the, best, the best answer is, I don't know. Because it's what happens afterwards. 
that is the demonstration of what's, what's taking hold. And so homework actually can be serve a number of purposes. It gets somebody into the word, right? You've been with them in the word in the session, but when they get out, you want them to still be looking at scripture, right? So a lot of homework is just looking up passages and writing out answers and stuff like that. Um, but homework also serves the purpose of reinforcing what was, what was talked about. How many times do you just hear something and you're like, of course, that's it. And you never need to hear it again. In fact, hearing something and then hearing it within a short period of time later helps it stick better. So so homework helps reinforce what you're doing. But then homework also is um, is a litmus test. That is, what if you have somebody that wants help but never does any homework? They don't want help. If I'm desperate and somebody says, hey, this can help you, I'm going to do it. Okay? I'm going to do it. And so homework can actually be a litmus test of, um, of the person's determination or commitment to, to the process of what you're trying to do, all right? So next week, we'll look at intention, and uh, under intention, we'll look at the nature of fake repentance and true repentance. And so hope this is helpful, so let's pray and get ready for our time of corporate worship. Father, thank you for the the sufficiency of your holy word, and we pray that um, that you would take uh, this time and just use it to help equip us just a little better to be able to help brothers and sisters that we love. And uh, Lord, we also pray that if we find ourselves in need of help, that that we would be humble enough to to get that help and to ask for it. And uh, Father, uh, we know that um, it's easy to, um, to give to somebody in need than to acknowledge our own need. And so we pray for your help in that. Meet us in the hour to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.